Our family lived just outside Phoenix, Arizona for about 18 years. There were so many things I liked about Phoenix. One of them was that it is a planned city. So all the major roads run either due east and west or due north and south. And that made it a lot easier <clears throat> to learn my way around. Once you find the road you want, the only difficulty is making sure you're going the right direction. On a number of occasions, I wrongly assumed I was headed north and that by turning right, I'd be going east, when in fact, I was going south and I ended up going west and drove miles in the wrong direction. Eventually, we owned a vehicle with a built-in compass. And I'll tell you what, having that compass in front of me made all the difference. The portion of the Bible we're covering in this lesson describes God's commands to Abram to go to the land I will show you and the promises of God that accompany this command. The significance of God's commands and promises to Abram are difficult to overemphasize. They're critical to understanding much of the rest of the biblical story. Throughout our patriarch study, we'll see these commands and promises challenged by people and by circumstances, but protected by God. And we'll also see that for the patriarchs, these commands and promises became a compass, a compass by which they directed their lives. At times, they figuratively headed east rather than west. Eventually, God's clear commands and promises got them back on course again. They were the guides that brought direction and purpose to their lives. Have you ever thought about what your life compass is? Where do you look for direction when you wonder if you've made a major mistake and taken a wrong turn? Maybe you're so busy that you're confused about your daily priorities. Where do you look? Where do you look for direction when you're bored or restless or lonely? Navigating through life can be challenging, can't it? We want, we need clear information, reliable principles, something we can keep returning to that will keep us focused and give us direction, something available at a moment's notice, something that helps us with routine decisions as well as life's big crises. We need a compass. Once we start reading the Bible, we find that it is full of commands and promises to give us the life compass we need. Well, as we begin learning about Abram's life, it's helpful to return to chapter 11 of Genesis, where we find a description of Abram's family. Who was Abram after all? Well, chapter 11 indicates that he and his family migrated from Ur of the Chaldeans to Haran. Their intention had been to relocate to Canaan. However, they ended up settling in Haran along the way. We also learn that Abram was one of three named sons. His brother 
Haran died some time after fathering Lot, who we know is important later in the story. His other brother, Nahor, was married to Milcah. Now, although they, Nahor and Milcah, weren't included in the party that traveled from Ur to Haran, we do find them there in Haran at a later time. And at that time, the area surrounding Haran is referred to in the scriptural text as Padan Aram. Nahor and Milcah, together with their son, Bethuel, and his children, Laban and Rebekah, names some of you might recognize, they end up playing an important role in Abram's story. Now let's look at chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. According to Acts 7, God appeared to Abram and called him to Canaan while he still lived in Ur. Yet Genesis 11 and 12 suggests that Abram left Ur under his father Terah's authority and that God's call to Abram to go to Canaan came once Abram was in Haran. Excuse me. Since Acts 7 clearly states that God first spoke to Abram in Ur, Maybe chapter 12 here is referring to that initial call, or maybe since Abram was so settled in Haran, as the text says, God needed to remind him of the call to Canaan after his father's death. You know, time to get going. Now look ahead at verses 4 and 5. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Remember, Lot was Abram's nephew, and Lot's father had already died. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. Now, we've also already been told that Abram's wife, Sarai, was unable to conceive. Her barrenness is an extremely significant fact as the story continues. In that culture, as in many today, the continuity of a family line through a son was considered extremely important. At this point in the story, it's likely that Lot, who'd already lost his father, remember that Lot was Abram's heir presumptive. Abram had no other children. So all this background information sets the stage for the story. Now, obviously, God's command to Abram to leave Ur and go to Canaan was significant. It meant leaving behind most all of what was familiar to the small party. Although archaeologists have discovered more than one ancient city named Ur, most scholars assume that the Ur in which Abram and his family originated was the large capital city of Sumer, a a cultured and sophisticated coastal city. And if so, Abram and, and the party probably left behind a fairly sophisticated lifestyle for a very simple rural one. Secondly, Joshua 24, 2 and 3 tells us that when God called Abram to Canaan, he called him away from an idolatrous family of origin. God planned to use Abram to build a family that would represent and worship him, and this necessitated that separation. Furthermore, Hebrews 11 stresses the faith of Abram in doing this, saying that he obeyed and went 
even though he did not know where he was going. Most likely, Abram knew very little about the God who'd spoken to him at this point. But in faith, he responded to what he knew. Another reason Abram's leaving and going was greatly significant is that it gave a critical example to his descendants, who much later were called by God to leave Egypt, where they'd lived as slaves for 400 years, and to go to Canaan, the promised land. They too had to leave by faith and go. Well, let's return to verses 2 and 3 and look now at God's promises. First, in verse 2, we see the promise of the, uh, uh, the blessing of becoming a great nation. I will make you a great nation. This was a promise that despite Sarai's barrenness, Abram would have many descendants. In Genesis 15, 5, God told Abram his descendants would be as numerous as the stars. Such a promise must have really stretched Abram's faith and imagination at that point in his life. Second was the promise of a great name in verse 2. Now, in ancient times, a person's name was far more than just what they were called. Their name represented their character. The promise here is that God would build Abram's character so that he would represent God well to others. As we learn, this was a process for Abram. Then verse 3 implies the promise of sovereign protection. God promised to bless those who blessed Abram and curse those who cursed him. God also promised that Abram would be a blessing to all people on earth. We can't really know how Abram understood this promise, but the New Testament certainly reveals that through Abram's descendant, Jesus Christ, the whole world's been blessed with the Messiah, a deliverer. Additionally, Abram's descendants wrote the Bible almost exclusively, and they preserved it for us through many generations. Finally, look ahead at verse 7, where we see God's promise that Abram's descendants would inherit the land of Canaan. Now think about this. God issued a tremendous call to a man from a pagan family. Once Abram was willing by faith to respond, God's command and promises, that was all he had. That was his compass. They were the rule by which he would live his life from this time forward. Abram didn't know everything, far from everything, but he did respond to what he knew. And that leads us to a first principle. God expects us to respond to what he reveals to us. He expects us to respond as well to what he's told us. In his word, he's given all of us clear commands and promises to keep us on course. As we know him better, we find that he's eager to speak to each of us. Primarily, this happens through the Bible. Occasionally, he speaks through a combination of ways. Other trustworthy people combined maybe with circumstances and in prayer. However, it's so important to keep in mind that people can be wrong. And circumstances can be misleading. And our imagination and emotions 
can deceive us. So we shouldn't ever follow any of these signs if, if they contradict clear biblical principles. You know, the Bible portrays people as forgetful. Uh, certainly true of me. But it portrays people as forgetful, especially when it comes to God's commands and promises. Guilty again. It's important to develop ways for us to remember God's commands and promises. For me, memorizing scripture has been a key to that. Another way is to underline the commands and promises that are right in your Bible that speak clearly to your situation. I find it helpful to write a date next to them and sometimes a word or two <clears throat> about the circumstance with which the command or promise helped me. You can also, especially if you don't like writing in your Bible, you can record verses with dates and the way God spoke to you in a journal. I like to do both. I keep a journal for the specific purpose of recording eight occasions on which I knew God was saying something important to me. After all, if the God who made me gives me direction, it certainly seems worthy of being recorded and remembered. Well, when we don't sense God is speaking to us, it's wise to go back and make sure we've already responded to what he's revealed, to what he's already revealed. Well, holding tightly onto God's clear commands to leave and go and to his promises of blessing, Abram began his journey with God. Now, Genesis 12 names three locations in Canaan to which Abram journeyed. From the north, where he entered, would have entered the land, to the south. And these locations continue, as we'll see, to be places where the patriarchs found themselves. The first is Shechem. Now, this is a city in the heartland of Canaan and was the place where God appeared to Abram, again promising the land to him. Verse 7 tells us Abram responded by building an altar. Next, we're told about a place between, some place between Bethel and Ai, as, uh, as, as mentioned here in the text, a place where Abram built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. Now, this phrase, called on the name of the Lord, Martin Luther translated it to mean Abram preached. And scholars who give weight to that interpretation say that Abram was proclaiming the name of the Lord among the Canaanites there. The third location is the Negev, mentioned in verse 9. The Negev is the desert highland region down to the south between Israel and Egypt. Negev, the desert, and the, the word Negev means dry. So initially, we're told of Abram's travels through the land of Canaan, but then in verses 10 through 20, we're told that sometime after Abram entered the land, a famine caused him to leave, to leave for Egypt. And the question arises as to whether or not Abram was mistaken to do so. There's no record that the Lord directed him to Egypt. Additionally, his trip there resulted in consequences that were certainly regrettable. It seems that Abram maybe wasn't walking by faith when he moved from Canaan to Egypt. He was, after all, still a work in progress. Well, once Abram arrived in Egypt, he made a serious mistake. 
Apparently, even with her advancing age, Sarai was quite beautiful. We're told in verses 11 to 13 that in order to protect his life from those who might kill him in order to have Sarai, Abram told Sarai to say that she was his sister rather than his wife. Now, later in Genesis, we learn that Sarai was, in fact, Abram's half-sister. So it was a half-truth, they told, which is still a lie. Several things resulted from their deception. Even in his role as brother, there was one suitor Abram couldn't deny, and that was Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. Sarai was taken into Pharaoh's harem, which certainly put her at great risk. Abram could have lost permanently the woman who was to bear his children. A second direct result of Abram's lie and Pharaoh's acquisition of Sarai was that he became wealthy. Abram became wealthy, acquiring animals and servants, which were important commodities of the day. He uh, seems to have acquired all of those from Pharaoh. Now keep in mind that wealth isn't always a sign of God's blessing. The psalmist complained to God that the wicked are often those who prosper. In a future lesson, we'll discover that one of the Egyptian servants obtained by Abram, a woman named Hagar, became a threat to God's promises to Abram and Sarai. Well, the third result of Abram's deception was that Pharaoh and his household suffered. The Lord inflicted serious diseases on his household. Now, in some way, Pharaoh came to believe that Sarai's presence in his harem was the reason for this divine judgment, and upon further investigation, he discovered Abram's deception. Abram was thrown out of the land. And also, we can suspect, Abram would have suffered his wife's wrath once she returned to him over the awkward position in which she'd been placed. Now, we're not specifically told whether or not Pharaoh engaged Sarai sexually on this occasion. At a later date, recorded in Genesis 20, God's protection of Sarai sexually in a very similar circumstance is clearly stated. So presumably, God was protecting her. Abram epitomized the life of faith by leaving Ur and Haran and going to Canaan. But here now he felt threatened by famine and by the implications of having a beautiful wife, and he ended up relying on his own schemes to save himself. His deception might have cost him his life. It might have cost him the wife who was to bear his children. It might have prevented him from ever even returning to Canaan. From a human perspective, Abram's selfishness put all of God's problem, promises at risk. Fear and insecurity often lead us off course, don't they? That's a principle worth noting. Fear and insecurity often lead us off course. How often do you act or react out of fear or insecurity? Sometimes I've found that happening to me many times in a single day. Perhaps more than anything else, Satan uses fear to keep us from doing what God wants us to do and becoming all that God wants us to be. Which fears and insecurities are threatening to lead you off course? 
God's commands and promises are our only reliable compass. Do you currently fear an attack from a relative or a co-worker? Check the compass. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, Jesus said in Matthew 5.43. Could you trust God to be your defense? The God who promises elsewhere to be a shield around you? Maybe there are financial worries threatening. Check the compass. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. You'll find that in Hebrews 11, uh, 13, 5. Could you trust God to provide for you? The God who also said, Look at the birds of the air. Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are they not much more valuable than you, not much more valuable than they? Maybe you're navigating through a complicated situation or relationship. Again, check the compass. James 1.5 tells us, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Can you trust that God, who promised, if you'll ask, you'll receive, that he will give you the wisdom you need? When appropriated, God's commands and promises protect us from getting off course. Abram returned to his altar at Bethel via the Negev. Now, while Bethel, while at Bethel, a couple of incidents took place that probably forced Abram to consider whether he'd been following God's compass when he chose to bring Lot with him into Canaan. After all, God had told him to leave his father's household behind. Chapters 13 and 14 make several important points. First, God had promised to give Abram the land of Canaan. However, the Canaanites were still occupying the land, so it wasn't adequate. The land wasn't adequate for the herds and households of both Abram and Lot. Apparently, both Abram and Lot had grown wealthy in Egypt. Second, chapter 14 illustrates Abram's growing power and influence in Canaan. There we find a small army that included households of local men willingly followed Abram into battle. And third, these chapters tell two of three stories in Genesis about Lot, stories that reveal Lot's character flaws. We discover that Lot was another potential threat to God's promises. He certainly wasn't a suitable heir for Abram. Now, it's interesting to note that Abram rerouted to the last place where he'd communed with God before entering Egypt, according to chapter 13, verses 3 and 4, when he'd found his way back to the place between Bethel and Ai. Once again, he called on the name of the Lord. But quarreling arose between Abram's herders and lots. As I mentioned, local Canaanites were surely also using the land, 
What remained just wasn't enough for both Abram's animals and Lot's. Now, previously, famine brought Abram into crisis. That's why he went to Egypt. Now, it's not famine, but abundance that brought him into crisis. Previously, Abram sought a selfish, manipulative, manipulative solution in fear. This time, Abram resolved the matter with a very unselfish, generous offer in faith. He offered Lot first choice of the land. How incredibly magnanimous. Abram was the elder relative and the head of the household, and therefore by custom, if nothing else, should have taken what was best for him. Now Lot chose the eastern fertile plain of the Jordan. He was infatuated with what he saw, and he left the promised land and pitched his tent near the wicked city of Sodom. A very careless decision. Abram had given up the familiarity of Haran to go to the unfamiliar land of Canaan. One type of loss for Abram. And then remember, he lost his father along the way. And finally, presumably, he not only lost Lot's company, but probably by Lot settling in Sodom, lost confidence that Lot was even a suitable heir for him. At this time, when Abram was probably quite discouraged, the Lord brought him just the reassurance he needed. First, the Lord confirmed his promise to give, Abram's numerous, to give Abram numerous offspring and all the land of Canaan. Then God told Abram to walk through the entire land. Some suggest that walking through the land may have reflected a, a legal mode of conducting a land transaction that was common in the day. Regardless, walking through the land surely gave Abram a greater perspective than the sad circumstances of all his loss. Although he'd lost human companionship, he'd not lost God's companionship or promises. Verse 18 tells us that Abram then settled in Hebron, where, according to chapter 14, he established himself with local princes. Now there, in chapter 14, we learned that the family conflict with Lot over land was replaced with another kind of conflict. Abram now faced a geopolitical conflict. The region was divided into city-states in those days, and there were four kings, Kedolaomer was one, he and three others, who came from more eastern lands, and they allied in battle against five Jordanian kings not so far from Abram's vicinity. And one of these five, we notice, was Bera, the king of Sodom. Now, these five kings had rebelled from previous subjug subjugation to Kedileomer, and apparently they were determined not to be in that position again, so they marched out to meet his forces. However, Kedileomer defeated them. Verse 12 says that Kedoleomer also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. Lot was already reaping the consequences of his poor decision. Now verses 13 and 14 tell us that 
A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. Abram had previously found favor with these local princes, obviously. He was becoming, as I said, a person of influence in the region. And God, as promised, was indeed blessing him. Unwilling to abandon his relative lot in crisis, Abram and his allies chased down the eastern kings, defeated them, and recovered all the captives and plunder. The victory is yet another indication of God's blessing on Abram. Now, upon his return from battle, Abram encountered two kings, two other kings, two kings who are contrasted with one another, Melchizedek, king of Salem, and Bera, one who's already been mentioned, the king of Sodom. Now, Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and Salem is most likely a reference to Jerusalem. We're told this man was both a king and a priest. Even more surprisingly, he was a priest of God Most High. So here we learn that at least one other resident of Canaan worshipped Abram's God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth, that is a tithe, of all he recovered. And Melchizedek then blessed Abram. The book of Hebrews portrays Melchizedek as a type of Christ, and some have suggested that this was just a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ to Abram here in Genesis 14. But it seems just as likely that Melchizedek was a historical figure who served as a type of Christ. The other man Abram encountered was Bera, king of Sodom. We've already been informed, chapter 13, verse 13, that Sodom was an extremely wicked city that sinned greatly against the Lord. Bera bargained with Abram for the captive people Abram had recovered. Whether Bera had any right to do so is doubtful. What is clear, though, is Abram's willingness, unwillingness, his unwillingness to benefit from anything even affiliated with Sodom. So we see Abram receiving the blessing of the king who was allied with God, Melchizedek, and refusing the propositional blessing of the king allied with evil. Abram was growing in his faith. By comparing the conflict in chapters 13 and 14, it's worth noting that while Abram chose not to fight the first battle, the battle with Lot for land, he did engage in the second one. How did Abram decide? How did he decide when to fight? It seems that when it came to personal loss, Abram trusted God to protect his personal interests and let Lot have his way. However, when more than just personal loss was at risk, Abram fought back. He fought for the sake of others. Don't you think that after having these two incidents involving Lot, Abram must have doubted the wisdom of bringing Lot along with him into Canaan? But it was too late. That was water under the bridge. In these two difficult situations that resulted, Abram just had to trust God to help him live courageously and righteously in light 
of a choice he'd already made. By keeping God's clear commands and promises as the compass in front of him, he was able to do what was right on both occasions. And that leads us to our third principle. God wants us to live with integrity, regardless of our circumstances or how they came to be. That's a tough one, isn't it? But it's surely true. God wants us to live with integrity, regardless of our circumstances or how they came to be. Oh, I've often made decisions that seemed right to me at the moment, only later to wonder if they indeed were right. Maybe you've had some big questions. You've wondered maybe, did I really marry the right person? Or am I living and working in the right place? Was I wise to have purchased that home, that vehicle, that item I'm now stuck with? There are some decisions we can't easily undo or just can't undo at all. Are you currently living with consequences of your own bad decision? There are times we have to trust God with the possibility, the probability, or even the certainty that we have made a mistake. Are you wondering how to get back on course? In moments of questioning, believing God will keep his promises to us and reminding ourselves of the clear instructions that he has given will enable us to live victoriously in difficult circumstances and to choose the right battles. God wants us to live with integrity, regardless of our circumstances or how they came to be. As we'll see, his clear commands and promises continue to be central to the story of the Bible. They were Abram's compass, and they are our compass as well. Our feelings may deceive us. Fear and feelings of inadequacy will often lead us off course. But God's clear commands and promises will always lead us in the right direction. <laughs>